Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. On June 23rd, Brownstein's Healthcare Industry Group convened a roundtable of healthcare professionals and experts to discuss the healthcare business climate during and post COVID 19. The discussion includes trends across different healthcare sectors, an update from Brownstein's Washington, D.C. team, False Claims Act issues associated with COVID-19 economic stimulus monies, the business and deal-making environment and risks specific to the healthcare industry, antitrust issues that could arise, as well as updates on the current state of the industry from medical professionals. We've been doing these roundtables for a great many years, uh, bringing together eminent uh, experts across the healthcare profession and trying to have a very high level of dialogue. If you imagine meet the press, but focus on healthcare topics. And what we'll try to do here today in a tight one hour program is bring together experts uh, from a wide range of disciplines in and around healthcare and give you some insights beyond what you can get in the headline news. Uh, myself, I founded the healthcare transactional practice at Brownstein and immediate past chair of our corporate department, special emphasis in mergers and acquisitions, general corporate in the healthcare industry. Our first, our first two panelists are my colleagues, Aaron Eisline and Emily Felder. Aaron is a seasoned litigator who counsels on a wide variety of disputes and regulations in the healthcare industry. Uh, not only helping healthcare providers comply with fraud and abuse laws, but also defending them uh, related to government investigations and False Claims Act lawsuits. We'll hear a little more about that in the program today. Emily Felder is our Senior Policy Advisor and Counsel from our Washington, D.C. office, uh, heading up our healthcare efforts there. She brings comprehensive policy insight on healthcare issues from her legislative experiences with robust understanding of federal health care programs, private health insurance, and public health issues currently affecting the country. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. Uh, I think we've all uh, hopefully looked around and uh, seen an environment that's starting to thaw out uh, for health care and otherwise. Just yesterday, I took my mother to physical therapy. The office was teeming with people all wearing their masks and socially distancing uh, today, I'll be taking my son to the orthodontist. Those braces have no mercy and uh, constantly need fixing. But it, it's a sign that folks are starting to come out of their hidey holes and seeking out needed health care uh, in areas beyond just uh, pure needs items, emergent items. For a while there, it seemed like we had uh, about three buckets of health care activity. We had urgent needs like dialysis and infusion. If you didn't get your dialysis or if you didn't get your infusion of required medicine, you were going to be in serious trouble. And those businesses had to know from the very beginning how to handle COVID treatment and social distancing, obtaining waivers, uh, all those things that are now widespread practices. Then there were healthcare sectors that were deemed discretionary. Uh, and sadly, they had to close entirely for periods of time or almost entirely. Dentistry, fertility, dermatology. Uh, other areas that are, are now uh, hopefully roaring back. The third category in, in my three buckets, at least, were hospitals that were called upon to do incredible things and forced to leave aside their elective procedures that tend to be high volume, high margin. And the financial hit to hospitals in having to preserve 150% surge capacity was tremendous. We'll talk about that some more. So, Emily, uh, we've seen a, a lot of funding come out of Washington, D.C., historic funding. What can we anticipate uh, for July? Will there be consensus around a fourth piece of legislation? And where might those dollars uh, go in the healthcare space? Sure. Thanks, Mike. And yes, we are expecting to see quite a bit of activity still to come in the healthcare space in July. Um, right now, we've already seen Congress act very quickly, enacting three very comprehensive legislative packages in April and in March um, to confront the coronavirus crisis. So, you know, in the CARES Act, which passed a couple months ago, there were significant strides made to help not only the healthcare sector, but the economy as a whole recover. And so we saw Congress enact the Paycheck Protection Program, which helps small businesses. Um, we saw them enact the Main Street Lending Program for larger businesses, 
um, give individuals who are unemployed additional benefits in that space. And then we saw a very robust action from Congress to fund hospitals and give loans to healthcare providers. So we've seen $175 billion so far in a provider relief fund that Congress allocated to HHS to help allocate grants to providers. Like you said, hospitals across the country um, initially canceled elective procedures. So we saw revenue and uh, volume at those hospitals drop 30, 40, sometimes 50 percent, even though they still had, you know, emergency services and they still had, you know, response related to coronavirus, um, we, we saw volumes dramatically drop. And so Congress also put together a loan program that would give hospitals and providers advance payments through the Medicare program. So Congress has already acted in a very aggressive way to try to help the healthcare sector. Um, they've also enacted increases in Medicaid funding for states. So they've bumped up allocations for Medicaid services to try to help state budgets. Um, and I think that will be a major focus for the July package. So we've already seen House Democrats put together a proposal um, that was called the HEROES Act, and they voted on that a couple, couple weeks ago. And that bill would give additional funding to state and local governments. So that's a top priority that we're seeing from House Democrats. They feel that state budgets have taken a major hit. Um, state Medicaid programs have taken a major hit. And there are concerns that states are going to be confronted with the choice of having to cut benefits or raise taxes or cut um, enrollment in their Medicaid programs. And so one thing that we've seen the House say, and, and Speaker Pelosi has said that her top priority in the next package is getting more dollars to states to help them with testing, to help them with their state budgets that are, that are in shortfall. Um, and, and that is something that is sort of non-negotiable for them. We also saw them prioritize additional funding for providers. So one of the main, main pieces out of the CARES Act and out of some of the additional funding is additional grants and loans to providers. So when you see, you know, as you mentioned earlier, the elective procedures are down, people aren't going to see, you know, routine doctor's visits. Um, that money is supposed to sort of help backfill those providers and make them whole. Um, and we're seeing that a lot of providers are still operating at a, at a significant loss. And so House Democrats are saying we want to put more dollars into that fund. Um, we want to try to not only make up for the lost revenue, but also a lot of the expenses that providers have um, outlaid, you know, in PPE and other, other issues. Um, as a result of trying to respond to this crisis. Um, so, so that's the, the House Democrat perspective. More dollars for healthcare providers, more dollars for states and local governments. On the Senate side, you know, Mitch McConnell is moving a lot more slowly. Um, he wants to see how the CARES Act, which was sort of the major, um, major bill so far, is implemented. We still have a lot of dollars that have not been allocated yet. Um, we still have, you know, the, a lot of programs that aren't completely implemented. And so we're expecting to, you know, see more of that happen, you know, throughout the rest of the summer. But Mitch McConnell's moving more slowly. So he's looking at, you know, his top priority is reopening the economy. So he's looking at liability reform, liability protections for businesses, um, trying to think about incentives for individuals to go back to work. Unemployment benefits are running out at the end of July. And so they're discussing, you know, if, if employees go back to work, are there any financial incentives that we can provide? Um, and the last thing that I'll mention is because of a lot of the conversations about police reform and racial disparities, that's become a major part of the conversation as well. And so even though that wasn't a significant piece of the House Democrat proposal, um, we're expecting them to push for additional legislation around racial disparities and COVID-19. So additional reporting, additional um, resources for certain communities. Um, and I think that will become a major part of the conversation as well. Uh, right now, you know, the House Democrats have already passed their bill. 
Senate Republicans are putting together a proposal right now, and we think that negotiations will really start after the 4th of July break. And we're expecting to see a bill come together before Congress leaves for August recess. So a hot summer in uh, July, at least, in D.C., a lot of action. I wonder if you could comment on potential trades that might be made toward the end. You know, that old saying, there are two things you don't want to see being made, legislation and sausage. Uh, I I think, could there be some trades, some horse trading around uh, liability caps or insulation from liability for businesses to get businesses uh, confident in opening that they won't be sued for COVID cases, transmittals? Uh, Could there be some trade-off there in return for some state, state and local government funding that uh, Republicans tend to frown upon. I think that's exactly it. I think that Speaker Pelosi came out very strong out the gate and said the state and local funding is non-negotiable. Um, Senator McConnell came out very strong and said, well, my non-negotiable piece is liability protections." I think in a normal world, it would be very difficult to get House Democrats to sign on to liability protections for businesses. Um, without significant protections for workers. I think normally Senator McConnell would not agree to large grants to backfill shortfall state budgets. Um, But I think you're right. I think they will come together and negotiate and, and ultimately get there because at the end of the day, it's better for everyone if a bill like this passes um, and everybody, you know, everybody wanted to succeed. And so I think end of the day it will come together but it it will take a lot of negotiating Um, and I think there's also going to be a conversation about the price tag. Um, Speaker Pelosi has said she wants her bill to be about three trillion dollars which is one trillion more than the CARES Act. Uh, Mitch McConnell has said he wants it to be about one trillion so that guarantees it'll probably end up around two trillion in the middle. Classic uh, horse trading here. So uh, I think on that liability protection, there's probably a sliding scale uh, between businesses that serve vulnerable populations like nursing homes and the like, uh, as compared to discretionary activities like going out to a restaurant. Um, But we'll see what comes out of the Washington legislative process. So Aaron, maybe you could comment on, uh, one, some of those hospitals that have been hard hit uh, and, and what that looks like on the ground. If uh, Congress doesn't find a way to get more dollars out there, uh, how are hospitals managing what they've been called upon to do here in this situation? Thanks, Mike. Well, hospitals sit at the forefront of the clinical side of treating COVID, um, but their normal business operations have been utterly gutted by government regulation and really the public's fear of contracting COVID and not going back in to get those services. So from a financial perspective, hospitals were really hit with a double whammy. At first, you know, we saw the um, immediate shortage of the PPE, the personal protective equipment, and COVID quickly exposed how we had serious supply chain issues and shortages. We all heard about the N95 mask shortages. We heard about gowns costing 11 cents then being, you know, during COVID, the price gouging came into effect and those gowns cost between 11 and $12 a piece, thinking that, you know, hospitals go through thousands of gowns in a day. That's just an incredible amount of price gouging. And if that wasn't bad enough, then CMS came out and recommended that um, hospitals cancel all their elective procedures. Governors of many states quickly followed suit, including Governor Polis here in Colorado. And we had a little over a month where elective procedures were uh, not happening in hospitals. And as you mentioned before, those are often lucrative procedures. Um, And the ability to perform those elective surgeries, and I want to just level set here and make sure we're all on the same page because I find the term elective surgeries to be very misleading. Um, Most elective surgeries are medically necessary surgeries. We're not necessarily talking about nose jobs and liposuction. We're talking about non-high acuity services and surgeries like orthopedic, spine, heart, non-slow-growing um, tumors. You know, these are things that people need to get in and have done that they weren't having done. Right. And that they're not necessarily coming back as fast to have done. So, you know, that, that suspension of these revenue-generating surgeries really put hospitals into a financial tailspin. The American Hospital Association 
has estimated that by the end of June, hospitals will have lost $200 billion in revenue. So that's a rate of about $50 a month. So when you consider you know, the cancellation of the elective surgeries along with the, the preparations and the costs that hospitals incurred to prepare for COVID, these, these dollars are just incredible. Um, the CARES Act obviously provided significant dollars to these hospitals, but not all hospitals got them, including rural hospitals. And that's one real area of concern is uh, rural hospitals that are just sitting empty right now, not having really anything going on and how viable are they going forward. Um, and so to offset these losses, hospitals have engaged in, you know, reduced spending. By one account, hospitals are, hospital spending is at an 11 year low right now. So in order to offset these losses, hospitals have been forced to look at layoffs, furloughs, and um, hiring restriction, freezes on bonuses, and they're really working at the moment to get the word out that they are safe and they're open for business, um, but their volume is significantly less than it was pre-COVID. Uh, they're triaging procedures, they're starting with the most critically urgent procedures, and watching their PPE supplies very, very carefully. Um, you know, with patients being nervous to come back, they do continue to put off treatment and that has people concerned about long-term um, expenses caused by not catching things early enough and what we're going to see from some of these um, people putting off treatments. But unfortunately for hospitals, you know, the hits really do keep coming. Um, what we're seeing right now is an incredible uptick in cybercrime uh, at hospitals that ransomware and malware incidents are really increasing. And part of this is because during COVID, uh, hospitals dramatically increased their interconnectivity with devices at hospitals. Um, there are more employees working remotely. Telehealth, you know, just went through the roof. Uh, families connected with inpatients because of visitor restrictions. So the sheer number of devices connected to a hospital's internet of things is at an all-time high. And obviously the more connectivity you have, the more potential risk you have for hackers. And so they're even more vulnerable than before. So hospitals are really facing challenges on all sides right now and um, it's unlikely they're going to return to business as usual anytime soon, but it, it may take years for them to recover financially from this. Well, I think that's uh, the epitome of the kind of topic we bring together in these panels where this has a government implication and Emily's going to be working hard on that fourth piece, piece of legislation in July, but then that's going to impact businesses and the deal-making environment and flows of investment dollars in the healthcare space. We'll talk about that more in a little bit, as well as whether antitrust authorities will relax standards for mergers if some are required to, to save hospitals and other healthcare businesses. Uh, Aaron, say a quick word or two about the False Claims Act with all of these dollars just being rapidly shoveled out the door by the federal government. Uh, some of the frauds that you mentioned a few minutes ago uh, what is the False Claims Act in a, a quick nutshell, and what can we expect to see enforcement-wise from the government? Well, the False Claims Act essentially is the government's tool for preventing and catching fraud on dollars spent. So uh, the FCA really has two different components to it. It has a uh, – the government can go after fraudsters directly, the um, – the penalties for an FCA violation are very steep. They are $22,000 for each false claim submitted, trouble damages, and attorney's fees, not to mention potential criminal charges. If uh, a defendant acts with criminal intent, they can face up to five years uh, in prison and fines. But the, the more... Um, interesting or the area we see more often is on the key TAM cases, the private whistleblower cases. And those are where a private citizen can stand in the government's shoes and prosecute a fraud on the government claim. Um, key TAM plaintiffs are called relators. And before they bring a lawsuit, they are required to um, give the government an opportunity to intervene and prosecute the action itself. Ketam cases are really quite lucrative. Ketam plaintiffs can uh, be awarded between 15 and 25 percent 
of an award if the government intervenes. They can be awarded up to 30% of an award if the government, if the government doesn't intervene. And so um, we know that we're gonna see an increase in FCA claims. We see that every time um, large spending comes out of DC. We saw that after the relief from Hurricane Katrina. We saw that after the TARP Act. Attorney General Barr has ordered the U.S. attorneys to put COVID-related fraud at the top of their list. And in the CARES Act, um, it created an office of the Special Investigator General for Pandemic Recovery, whose job it is to audit and investigate and monitor all the loans coming out of the CARES Act. So um, in our group, we see a lot of whistleblower claims around uh, billing, you know, fraudulent Medicare billing, fraudulent Medicaid billing. We work with our clients on uh, investigating those with third-party consultants to evaluate the more serious claims. But we are counseling all of our clients right now to remain vigilant, to comply with all of their internal auditing procedures with respect to clients that are awarded CARES Act money. They need to be very careful about uh, knowing where those dollars are spent, keeping track of where those dollars are spent, and not giving up being vigilant. The SCA has a six-year statute of limitations, and often it takes months, if not years, for the DOJ to decide whether or not they want to prosecute a claim brought forth by a relator. So this is something that I, I anticipate we are going to see for quite some time. Um, unfortunately, not unlike the coronavirus itself, will probably be with us for some time. Uh, and I, I can imagine the cold sweat breaking out on the brow of many uh, clients who took PPP monies, uh, and just ensuring that records are shipshape and tight, and should one of these increases come along, uh, make sure that you're well represented, uh, because there's a lot of risk. Uh, for the whole decade following TARP, uh, there were TARP prosecutions under the False Claims Act, and um, while we can uh, perhaps in, in zealously representing our, our clients in defense of FCA uh, claims, we can you know be sympathetic. Um, on the other side of the coin. Uh, these things didn't uncover genuine frauds. Uh, the FCA wouldn't continue to exist in its current form. So, you know, sadly, there are frauds perpetrated, and there's a role for FCA. Um, I wanted to frame up our next topic. Uh, what does all this mean for the business environment? And so for the business of healthcare, we talked a little bit at the outset about um, how we saw some sectors completely shut down. Uh, one of them being dentistry for a period of time. And I don't know about you all, but I, I certainly don't find my teeth to be discretionary. But um, it, it's a tricky uh, world we're having to navigate here with COVID. Um, what are we looking at? Uh, and we'll pose this question of uh, two different healthcare investment bankers and experts on our panel, uh, Alex Geyer and Jason Ficken. Um, and Alex, we'll go to you first. What are we looking at in terms of the business environment and what was pre-February a very heated environment for healthcare deal making and investment of private equity dollars? Uh, what are we looking at for the near and midterm uh, as we emerge from this current phase of COVID and uh, start to lift our heads up and look forward? Alex, I'll go to you first. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate the opportunity to share some thoughts today. Um, in terms of the environment for healthcare businesses and deal making, um, I would first draw a distinction between opportunistic M&A, kind of including stressed or distressed assets, and the typical auction processes and strategic combinations that we tend to think of in terms of the regular way M&A market. Um, the opportunistic market has re remained alive and well uh, through the pandemic so far at least for buyers who have liquidity and strong familiarity with the business of a potential target, especially ones who have become more motivated sellers. You know, think a direct competitor or a potential tuck-in that may have been reluctant to engage uh, in the past, uh, but whose uh, perspective on that has now changed based on the impact of COVID. Um, what I term the regular way deal market uh, is just starting to reopen as travel and workplace uh, restrictions are lifted and debt financing markets uh, continue to recover. I think it's safe to assume that uh, this initial reopening phase will be pretty gradual in nature uh, and we'll likely see greater bid-ask spreads in, from a valuation standpoint. 
longer deal timelines, uh, additional purchase agreement provisions, uh, and less aggressive financing terms than were typical pre-COVID. Um, the M&A market recovery out of the Great Recession was pretty U-shaped. It took about six or seven years for total deal activity to recover. Um, I think there are a lot of good reasons to expect uh, the recovery out of COVID can be sharper than that. Though with the caveat that you know some of these regional flare-ups and a potential broader second wave could bring um, additional disruption and grind things to a halt uh, in a worst case over the next uh, 12 to 18 months. And maybe a little more than you wanted on the general deal market. So I'll, uh, I'll, 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 uh, let me turn to, uh, to what I see in terms of subgroups um, within healthcare. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll preface my comments, you know, kind of by echoing, you know, some of what Emily said around, you know, there's, there's going to be a, what I, a, a heightened element of uh, kind of safety concern and risk aversion within the population, you know, particularly at, uh, among the elderly and those with pre-existing conditions um, for some time, I think, you know, at least until some combination of a widely available vaccine and uh, effective therapies for COVID are, are in place. Um, that said, first and foremost, among, you know, sectors that I think are going to be winners, I would put telehealth and other digital technologies that allow for the virtualization of care and reductions in the need for in-person visits and diagnostic procedures. So I think these are changes in care delivery that are here to stay, in my view. Um, in a similar vein, technologies that enhance remote and virtual capabilities for clinical trials and other aspects of R&D and life sciences should also be in high demand. Uh, it's unfortunate to say but behavioral care should be another very strong growth area, whether you're talking substance abuse and addiction treatment, eating disorders, uh, depression and anxiety, or trauma around various forms of abuse, all of which have spiked as the pandemic has uh, disrupted lives in so many ways uh, with lasting impacts in most cases. In terms of facility Operators and, and practice groups that have been directly impacted by COVID so far. Let's put hospitals in a separate category uh, for a minute. I think um, uh, Emily and Aaron laid out very well exactly the challenges that they faced and the length of the potential recovery there. I would say that um, aside from hospitals, that even elective care providers and, and practice groups into both a hospital or elective care setting um, are in various stages of recovery mode right now. And it will probably take the balance of this year, if, if not longer, to get a true sense of normalized run rates and growth expectations uh, going forward and, and, and really how you value those. But I would make a couple of observations around likely longer term impacts. Uh, the first is that the pandemic experience should only accelerate what was already a clear trend of patient encounters migrating out of the four walls of acute care hospitals and into less institutional settings like uh, ASCs and urgent care clinics. As a corollary, um, physician practices and related areas like dental and physical therapy that operate primarily in outpatient and community settings um, should recover more quickly and be increasingly favored uh, over those that are more hospital-based with a premium placed on uh, those that are ahead of the curve in terms of virtualizing care and uh, general flexibility. Uh, in terms of their service offering. And then lastly, at the uh, risk of being abundantly obvious, um, I would expect home care to benefit, uh, continue benefiting at the expense of nursing homes and uh, other senior care facilities for the foreseeable future. Those are my thoughts, main thoughts. Uh, happy to turn the mic over now. Great, Alex. Thank you for those. Uh, Jason? Uh, our next investment banker, and I, I neglected to uh, say Alex is with GLC Advisors, 25 years of experience uh, across the healthcare industry, pharma and life sciences. Uh, Jason Ficken comes to us from Quadriga, uh, based here in Denver, and uh, his firm has a particular focus of late in behavioral health, uh, practice management, and post-acute, and Mr. Ficken. Look, I think, Alex, you were very articulate and, and comprehensive in, in articulating 
what are some of the subsectors that have really been impaired through this pandemic and, and how do we emerge from it? I think rather than reiterating and, and affirming a lot of Alex's observations, I might talk anecdotally about some of the experiences that we've had um, specifically in those areas that Alex touched upon. Um, it's been anything but anticipated in the way that our clients and the marketplace has engaged throughout this COVID pandemic. Um, as you can expect, there remains tremendous amount of capital out there in the market and therefore tons of demand for all things healthcare related. But many of the theses that people had in a pre-COVID environment have really shifted towards trying to understand who will be insulated on a going forward basis. And again, Mike has, um, despite some very insightful and strong political views that he and I share, uh, told me to, to stay away from those, those topics here. So I'll be as agnostic as I can by saying there will inevitably be some spikes and troughs uh, that go along with this. And as a result, um, there will be some hesitancy to kind of put capital to work into things that were impaired over the last three or four months. However, I think it creates a unique opportunity to look at a, a different subsegment than maybe you had pursued in the past. Take ophthalmology as a for instance. You would be hard pressed to find a more um, universally pursued subsector of the physician practice management world than ophthalmology. We're seeing throughout physician practice management a lot of compression in the time that it takes for people to get involved and actually saturate that marketplace. And ophthalmology was not something that was uh, immune to that. But in just a short 18-month time period, we saw nine different uh, platforms get formed in that area. It's a far cry from dental, which is north of 40. But the simple truth is people started to jump on the ophthalmology bandwagon without anticipating that you might have a situation where, to Aaron's point, something gets deemed elective that maybe isn't inherently elective and completely shuts down those volumes. So many of our clients in the, the eye care industry, we're seeing 80% or, or greater declines in patient volume. But this other subsector of healthcare around retina was something that people weren't paying attention to. And I guess the theme is that looking into specific subsectors of healthcare that have insulation or a wrap that can be delivered uh, can be very, very effective. So what we're seeing right now is although not tremendous demand for ophthalmology practices, there's been a significant uptick in, in demand for retina practices because those patient volumes were off you know, less than 10 or, or even 15% despite the, the vulnerability of that, that patient community. Um, you know, Dental, that's something that uh, Mr. King brought up at the very beginning, and I know that came to a screeching halt but has roar, come roaring back because many buyers are now seeing it as a, a distressed opportunity, something where you're not having to pay 13 or 14 times to you know, gain access to that market and bring it back into more reasonable, you know, seven, eight, nine times range. And, you know, I'll even say you look at orthopedics. I know, you know, both, both Aaron and, and Alex had touched upon that, but we had a couple of processes specifically in orthopedics, you know, not get launched as we were you know, embarking on the, the onset of, of COVID. And the simple truth is right now, those patient volumes are not just returning to pre-COVID levels, but as they take care of the tremendous demand that existed or was put on hold, um, you're seeing 120, 130% of kind of pre-COVID um, or pre-pandemic um, patient volume. So we're fully anticipating that the demand profile exists for many of these specialties. Um, but that it's just going to take a little bit more time. And, and the last thought I would leave you guys with is it remains a wildly polarized market environment. I think Alex had put out there, you know, it might be third, fourth quarter of 2020, maybe even the you know, first quarter of 2021 to where we really start to see deal flow pick up in earnest. But I knew we were in trouble kind of mid-April when one of the, the private equity groups that focuses almost exclusively on healthcare told me, they simply will not invest in anything that has a waiting room. And I'll, I'll let you all determine if that was prudent or, you know, overzealous, but it at least gives you some insight into the extreme thought process and, and risk assessment that people are putting into deploying to, you know, deploying capital on a going forward basis. Well, Jason, Alex, uh, those comments are incredibly insightful uh, I'll share a couple perspectives from my view doing healthcare transactional. I think the uh, essentials 
that I mentioned at the top, like dialysis and infusion, uh, they keep on keeping on. And they've had to figure out out of necessity how to do what they do as safely as possible. Because if people don't get those treatments, very bad things happen. Uh, and I believe, and, and this is purely opinion, but uh, whether it's political rallies, uh, protests, uh, people feel like they're done with COVID. Unfortunately, as we're going to hear from uh, medical experts at the end of the roundtable, COVID's not yet done with us. Uh, and so it's a matter of having the most robust systems in place uh, to protect. And that word that Alex used of virtualization, uh, taking some of the activities that happen in the office environment, enabling them to occur elsewhere, and being really tight and efficient and as safe as possible with operations. I think if I were to uh, relay some, some further hearsay from the investment community that uh, ambulatory surgery centers, ASCs, uh, may well see some benefit from the current environment because it's not the hospital. That the hospital, as Aaron had said, uh, trying to figure out how to triage who's coming through the front door in a manner that's safe for all the various uh, hospital patrons, uh, that's a process. And the ability to segregate potential COVID folks from uh, the elective surgery folks, that's an important step for hospitals to get comfortable with. Uh, the notion of having tents uh, for triage for COVID uh, potential COVID folks is something that may stay with us, weather permitting. But the ASC uh, represents an opportunity, and uh, we already were seeing the rise of the ASC for procedures out, outside of the hospital setting. Uh, we may yet continue to see that rise. I don't know, Jason, Alex, what do you guys think? Well, I, I'm, I'm glad you touched on that because I will tell you, it's not just from the provider's process perspective that I think can impact. Uh, the care setting in which people are receptive uh, to, to receiving their care. But you touched on ASCs. I mean, birthing centers is another thing, right? That at the end of the day, that was kind of where we were all going um, to have children. And now uh, the fear factor has certainly set in to where there seems to be some resistance or some reticence to return into a hospital setting for something as, as, as normal um, as, as hospital birthing. So we're familiar with a client right now that has just raised significant amount of capital to deploy 10 to 12 um, you know, birthing centers uh, across the country. And I think that would be the last point that I, I would want to raise before handing the conch shell over to Alex is we're in a time right now where people are really geographically, used to be geographically agnostic in the way they thought about a sector, but now you might be more prone to pursue an investment less by the subsector that it serves and more by the geography that it's in. I mean, right now, almost anything that's touching the Northeast um, you know, people are not pursuing. They're really uncertain in, in terms of both the political and care delivery landscape that exists there. Whereas, and again, it happens to be some of the states that are starting to spike, but in, you know, the, the Midwest, the upper Midwest, the Southwest, those are regions that people are almost asking me before we deliver the subsector or the punchline, you know, where is this business located? And that's covering a lot of the ways that they're thinking about pursuing investment. Interesting. Alex? I completely agree um, with the geographic uh, consideration. And then also, you know, the, the, the general point about the, the, the risk aversion that people have around entering the four walls of a hospital unless they absolutely have to, I think is going to be an extremely persistent characterization um, for the foreseeable future. Um, and, uh, you know, just in the, and, and, and any sort of elective surgery, and I know <laughs> we, 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 we talk about that term in quotes, right? No surgery is truly elective, right? Um, but if you have the opportunity to do that in a, in a surgery center or even a surgical hospital that doesn't have an ICU, that doesn't have an emergency room, that isn't having to triage patients, um, I got to believe nine times out of 10 or more, that choice is going to be made to have that procedure uh, in the ASC or the, the specialty set. Yeah, hearing a lot of that. Uh, doubling back half a step to the woes that hospitals are facing, particularly rural hospitals, uh, Alan Grunis, uh, our head of antitrust at Brownstein, uh, formerly with the antitrust division in the DOJ, uh, I'd like you to comment on whether we'll see a little more latitude from antitrust regulators at the FTC and DOJ uh, there's a concept of a failing firm defense, 
a more permissive standard for mergers if two firms are failing. Uh, and then the notion of a flailing firm defense, where uh, if two firms aren't, aren't quite failing yet, but are headed that way, uh, could we see a, a little bit more of a generous uh, take from Washington and antitrust enforcement if it would, in fact, preserve health care in underserved communities? What are you anticipating? What are you hearing? Thanks, Mike. Um, I think the short answer to the question um, about whether the antitrust agencies are going to get more liberal is no. Um, both agencies have said that. Uh, I don't think it should surprise anybody on this call that a lot of deals that are being proposed now, uh, parties are going in saying, uh, if we don't get this deal done, we're going to go bankrupt. And the response, and I've heard this one myself, so I can speak to it, is, well, then go bankrupt and come back to us and, and uh, see what happens then. Um, the failing firm defense, which you mentioned, is pretty strict, and it's really hard for parties to meet it because essentially it means the assets are going to go out of the, the market. Uh, there's no possibility of reorganization under Chapter 11. Um, the uh, you know the response to COVID at the in, at, at the agencies is kind of interesting to me. Um, on the one hand, um, both both the FTC and the DOJ are speeding up. Um, business proposals that can be seen as helpful to uh, to the healthcare system and to getting uh, things out there. So, for example, the business review letter at DOJ, um, you, these things could have taken a year in the past, and the FTC and the DOJ have both said, if you come to us with a proposal and it's not illegal, it's not anti-competitive, but you're uncertain about it, we'll get you an answer within a week. And so some distributors of PPE used that, got their answer, and that's the sort of thing that's, you know, affirmatively pushed, and, and DOJ and FTC will assist on that. On the other side of the coin, um, as we've heard before about False Claims Act, um, DOJ has got a collusion uh, procurement uh, strike force out there um, because when crises hit, as you heard earlier, uh, fraud happens. So um, DOJ has got a lot of U.S. attorneys' offices, people looking out already for, for fraud that may come out of this. So on that side, they're getting more intense. Um, but in terms of arguments that they should just relax their standards and be a little more liberal. Um, I think the answer to that is going to be uh, no. Um, in, you know, you might, you could hypothesize about putting two weak companies together and, and get a strong company out of it. Well, uh, I, I had a conversation uh, along those lines with somebody at the FTC last year who said, well, that's kind of like tying two rocks together and seeing if they'll float. That's, that's the way the, there's, there's agency hostility to, to, uh, to loosening the regs. Well, that's not altogether surprising given our past work together in the healthcare space and otherwise. Uh, thank you for those comments. Pivoting to the little bit longer term future, Emily Felder, uh, if you wouldn't mind giving us your take from inside the beltway on what's likely to come out of this fall and not putting on the spot to do political prognosticating, but an awful lot of um, idealism has been shared about using this COVID situation as a teachable moment to fix healthcare, fix what ails us and uh, move toward uh, potentially a more effective system. And we've had a lot of discussions in this uh, roundtable forum over the years on uh, how do we get Washington to do big things and really reform healthcare to make it more effective, spending 18% of our GDP for results that are inferior to the industrialized world? Emily, what might come out of this fall uh, under each scenario? Sure. Thanks, Mike. So, you know, I think it's, it's too early to tell exactly what's going to happen with the presidential election. Um, we have to think about a number of different factors. Um, a lot of folks think that the economy is still going to play a, a very 
instrumental role. Um, so whether we're able to um, get through the, the COVID-19 crisis, whether the economy um, stays strong or gets stronger, I think is going to be really critical to President, Trump, pre President Trump's prospects. prospects. Um, I think that, you know, the, the vice presidential pick is also going to be really important. Um, we don't know yet who um, Biden is going to pick, but I think that's going to play a, a really important role. I think the most likely scenario, though, is that we still have a split government. So um, whether Trump wins, um, it's, it's still likely that the, uh, the House Democrats will hold on to the House. Um, if Biden wins, um, you know, it's possible that the Senate still stays in Republican control. And so I think, you know, if we have a split government outcome, which is the most likely outcome, then we're going to see a lot of sort of the same policies that we've been seeing. We're going to see a lot of struggles to get large legislation through. Um, obviously, the coronavirus release, relief packages are the exception. Um, but, you know, when it comes to priorities like additional coverage, you mentioned there have been a lot of conversations about um, uninsured rates in, in coronavirus times and uh, coverage for the Medicaid population. I think that there will be conversations around that, but it'll be a very difficult thing to get through a divided Congress. Um, if there's a Democratic sweep, if Biden wins and Democrats take the Senate and Democrats take the House, um, then things will get really interesting. Um, then you will have a situation where you will be able to enact broad health care legislation. Um, and the important thing to note there, too, is that the, the Senate doesn't have to um, really have a, a significant takeover by Democrats. So if Democrats win just 51 seats in the Senate, they can use a tool called budget reconciliation, um, which is how Republicans passed their tax law several years ago and how Democrats initially passed the Affordable Care Act. Um, so that you only need 51 votes in the Senate to pass a bill. And so we're expecting if, if the Democrats sweep this election, um, that they would charge out the gate with a lot of very ambitious proposals. So, you know, whereas if you have divided government, you're looking at folks thinking about potential moves in telehealth, you're thinking they might look at issues related to the domestic supply chain. If Democrats sweep, we're expecting to see very ambitious drug pricing proposals like negotiation in Medicare. Um, we're expecting to see action on single payer or Medicare for all. Um, I think that, you know, at, with Biden as president, he's certainly moved to the left during the primary period. Um, so I think that he is more likely to embrace some sort of coverage expansion through the Affordable Care Act as it exists, rather than embrace a single payer um, or Medicare for all type model. Um, but he has endorsed what is called a public option. So the option to buy into Medicare. And so I think we'll see out the gate a lot of really aggressive proposals on healthcare legislation. Um, and, and right now, you know, it is trending that Democrats are up in the polls, um, but everything is very volatile. So like I said at the beginning, it all comes down to the economy. Um, it comes down to the unemployment rate, it comes down to how, how well we're able to get through uh, the current health crisis. Well, I think there's some appetite out there for tackling big problems uh, with big solutions. The legislation, PPP and the like, has been unprecedented in scope and scale. And nonetheless, uh, you signal a little bit of a cautionary note on uh, whether Medicare for all is something that the Democratic Party, uh, if led by a Biden administration, could or would push through. But just in the hypothetical, if uh, a President Biden were to come to pass and were to be swayed, uh, could that be accomplished through budget reconciliation with only 51 votes? Absolutely. And, and it'll depend on who those 51 votes are. Um, you know, if you have, uh, you know, more conservative members. It depends on what states win, um, who votes in a Republican, who votes in a Democrat. I think, though, that that even if there was a push for a Medicare for all type type bill, 
um, Biden himself is more likely to support expansion through the ACA. So looking at more robust subsidies, expanding Medicaid, making it available to additional um, additional individuals. I think that you know Medicare for all, while it's popular and it, it's polling better and better, um, is a really drastic change. And I think there's more support in Congress, particularly from some of the more seasoned senators on the Democratic side, to expand what exists um, and then move forward to other other things. I think drug pricing is also and, and negotiation of Medicare is also such a high priority for them. I don't know that they'll want to lose steam to push through something that could be as controversial as Medicare for all proposal. And have you heard anything about a dental benefit? We've talked a lot about dentistry on the roundtable today uh, being worked in. So that's actually something that is has been included in the House Democrats proposal on drug pricing. So um, there are there are dental benefits that have been um, discussed as well as hearing benefits to through Medicare. Um, I think that's something that's very popular. It's also very costly. Um, it's it's a it's a huge cost um, that would have to be offset. And so uh, while it's a popular idea, I I don't know that it has risen to the level of you know top priority for you know January February out the gate next year. Um, but it's certainly something that is being discussed and it has a lot of support um, in the Democratic Party. Got it. Well, you talked about a potential President Biden taking a mend it, don't end it approach to the Affordable Care Act. Uh, the Affordable Care Act has been hotly contested. I remember having panels on it before it even came into existence. And it's been a, a topic in these roundtables for all the years we've been having them. Uh, what is the future of the ACA with the Supreme Court? Uh, in a, a quick little nutshell. Sure. So it is sort of the, the zombie issue that never goes away. But uh, in March of this year, the Supreme Court said that they were going to take up the latest challenge to the ACA. Um, and what's in question now is the constitutionality of the tax, the um, tax that taxes an individual for not having health insurance. Um, the Republican tax bill in 2017 zeroed out that tax so that there's really no tax penalty if you do not have individual health insurance. So the Fifth Circuit uh, ruled on this issue, um, and the Supreme Court is going to take up the appeal now. Um, it looks like, you know, it's not going to be decided before the presidential election. We had thought initially um, if the Supreme Court did an expedited appeal, they could decide on the constitutionality of the individual mandate tax before the election. Um, now, it looks like briefs are actually due sometime this week, and they will take up the case sometime in the fall. Um, at issue here, though, really is the issue of severability. So if the, the, if the Supreme Court decides, okay, the individual mandate is no longer a tax, and that's unconstitutional, then does the rest of the law fall with it? And a lot of folks think, you know, it's very possible they decide it is not constitutional the tax itself, but the rest of the law, we're going to let Congress, you know, keep that. Um, and, 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 you know, it's not necessarily tied to that tax, but it's, you know, it, it, they very well could strike down the entire law. Um, and in, in that case, you know, they would probably come out with a decision sometime in the fall, likely after the election. And then whoever wins, whether it's Trump or Biden, and whoever's, you know, responsible in Congress, is going to be responsible for coming up with a replacement um, or coming up with a way to pass it in a way that's um, you know, sufficient for the constitutionality requirements. So I think it's going to be um, really interesting to see what happens. It's probably not going to have a direct impact on the election because the outcome will, will come after everyone votes in November, um, but it will be the responsibility of whoever takes over in January. Well, we have a very full plate of healthcare issues, and, and the very existence of the ACA is something that uh, has been uh, in contest since its birth, but uh, something we didn't want to go without a quick word on. So thank you for that, Emily. We're going to pivot toward uh, Dr. Elizabeth Hawk, uh, who has a PhD, dual boarded neuroradiologist and nuclear medicine physician uh, with an infinite amount of credentials on her wall behind her there. And I think the key 
piece for her to add to our dialogue today uh, is her role with Ampersand Intelligence, a consulting company focused on COVID-19 pandemic response. Uh, she's an internationally recognized speaker, speaker on artificial intelligence applications in medicine and healthcare. Uh, Elizabeth, I'm gonna ask you a question and our standard for these roundtables is to get beyond uh, the headlines, to get beyond what you can get on uh, MSNBC, Fox at all. Um, what is our future with COVID-19? Tell it to us straight. <laughs> Thanks so much, Mike. It's a pleasure to be with all of you today. I think when we think about what we're experiencing now in the global pandemic, we need to sort of frame it in two thought processes. Uh, one, how physicians and healthcare professionals are practicing medicine, and of course, how our patients and our communities are experiencing the healthcare system. Uh, in terms of how we're practicing medicine, uh, times of crisis, such as a global pandemic, truly accelerate innovation. So we're seeing rapid acceleration, not only in medical and scientific knowledge, but really in technological development. Um, new solutions surrounding artificial intelligence, of course, but also wearable technology, uh, less invasive uh, diagnostic and treatment techniques, um, as well as telemedicine, telehealth, are just rapidly expanding. And when you couple these uh, with the challenge of a now um, becoming more and more uninsured population as the unemployment rate rises, um, and the healthcare inequities uh, that surround the national climate that have been recently highlighted, uh, these challenges really come to head and feed uh, development in the way we actually practice the art of medicine. And the really wonderful thing, the silver lining, is that these will really so, uh, change the way we practice medicine to come. So if you look into your crystal ball uh, and the climate for business, um, will artificial intelligence, innovation, um, will these uh, great breakthroughs bail us out and help us get back to normal sooner than later? Maybe there's a hopeful tone in that question. <laughs> I think absolutely, but I think that there's a different normal and maybe a better normal. Um, so I don't think they're going to get us back to where we are. I think they're going to take us to a new and better place of how to deliver care. So the whole point of artificial intelligence in medicine is to enhance the way you deliver care into a way that was higher and better and more quality than you were delivering it before. And I think they will take us not back to where we were, but to a better place going forward. Excellent. And uh, what do you think that place is going to look like? So come uh, a year from now, uh, what, what would you project uh, summer activities and the like, uh, summer camps, you know, some of which are, are going on with the show, some of which have been canceled entirely? Uh, what would you predict? Well, I think that gets into the patient experience and our community experience in terms of COVID-19. Um, as it's been discussed on this call, hospitals um, are a very challenging place right now. And um, places in our community and uh, places of care for our patients, such as the outpatient surgical center setting, are um, tremendously of value right now uh, for two reasons. One, they help to create a safer environment for patients but they also help to manage that fear factor of patients that are, or community members that are really fearful to go back and seek care or go back to summer camp. Um, one, because they have a much more controlled environment, they're able to implement really tight policies and procedures, such as that we see in surgical centers, um, but also because they're able to pivot and shift and act very nimbly um, in reaction to the incoming science and medicine as it evolves. Um, so places that are really well-controlled areas like surgery centers, uh, like well-controlled camps or, or other community centers are gonna be the ones that really emerge ahead of the game because they're able to evolve with the um, evolving information that we're receiving. Excellent. Well, uh, last but certainly not least, uh, we have Dr. Robert Bray with us, uh, notwithstanding his own uh, procedure he had this morning, he's, he's fought through to join us and uh, lend his voice to the dialogue Dr. Bray is the founder and director of DISC uh, Surgery, previously served as the chief of neurosurgery at Travis Air Force Base, and has so many uh, security clearances and access to intelligence that if he tells us, he may have to kill us all, which would be something because there are over 100 people on this video. Dr. Bray. I, I just have a couple of things to add quickly, and my voice is a little off. I'm, I'm two hours post-op. One, I think that, that uh, you need to distinguish with 
HOPD hospital outpatient department is still an outpatient. And what we're looking at is high acuity outpatient where major cases are done in the outpatient environment. And that physical separation that exists really is what's allowing the, the fear factor because what we're seeing is the fear factor is very, very real. People are afraid to go to, to hospitals. The hospital admissions are down 30 to 40% on strokes and heart attacks, meaning that people are dying at home. So we really need to create a social media that a safe environment exists. We're seeing 130 to 150% increase in volume in the outpatient market. There is quite a bit of regional variation across the U.S. right now. 24 states are on the rise. The other ones are stable. And there's a lot of good information out there on what your local is doing. But, you know, really look at, at the local area and realize that this is not a secondary wave of COVID. We are still in the primary spike. It just hasn't fallen off. It hasn't fallen off with, with uh, summer. It hasn't fallen off where we are. While blunting the curve as opposed to a spike means we stayed under the curve of hospital utilization, but we're still the area under the curve of the total number of people getting, getting sick is still up there. So we're, we're looking at a prolonged event and this type of thing is, is incredibly important to looking at what the new normal is. So looking at protocols and protocols that manage those outpatient centers and manage the development of the return to business in general is just an incredibly important topic right now. Well, Dr. Bray, thank you so much for uh, pushing through to join us with your insights uh, and sharing uh, Dr. Hawk with us as well. Uh, both of you really uh, shine a light on uh, medical science, uh, which I, I would submit we can't get enough of these days. You know, the more uh, science, in fact, uh, the better. I have a couple of questions on our Q&A function here, and we'll see if we can get through to at least one of them. Uh, had a question here for the panel. Does anyone expect to see a change in federal legislation regarding availability of home care benefits through Medicare and MA plans? I know uh, Jason Ficken and I have done some home health care transactions together. Uh, we heard from uh, both Alex and Jason on potential for rising home health care uh, environments other than nursing facilities uh, may become more popular. Uh, Emily, do you have any, any kind of of a line or insight on a potential federal support for home care benefits? Sure, yeah, and that, that's absolutely something that um, there is a lot of support for, and it's actually something that has been done to a certain extent through the regulatory process. So there's a number of waiver flexibilities that um, the, the administration has that CMS and HHS can put into effect um, in the context of a public health emergency. And so we have seen an uptick in home health care um, because of those waivers during this public health emergency period. Um, there is a lot of support for it, particularly as an alternative to a nursing home or long-term care context. Um, it's, it's much cheaper for Medicare. It's better for patients. People like having that, that type of access. Um, I will say that, you know, it, it is something that there is a lot of bipartisan support for. Um, that said, you know, there are a number of priorities. I don't think that we're planning to see that imminently in the next package, um, but it is something where there are opportunities in, in November. Um, there's another healthcare vehicle uh, where a number of healthcare programs are expiring at the end of November. So we could see some interest in that. Um, but it is, it, is, it is a challenging issue because you have a lot of individuals that are supportive of en enhanced home care um, and then you have some specialty groups that are not as supportive in certain, in certain settings. So it really depends on the setting. It depends on the patient. Um, but generally, yes, there is, there is support for that. And the devil's in the details, as always. Another great question for the panel. Will COVID cause a consolidation of hospitals and the traditional functions of them? Uh, that, that's one that uh, is one of those cosmic inquiries 
Although part of why I asked Alan Grunis to weigh in and share his expert opinion from an antitrust perspective is that I do personally, uh, as an M&A practitioner, see that not necessarily as a straight line from COVID, but financial distress. And uh, we'd already seen over the last eight, nine, 10 years, a vast amount of consolidation of rural facilities uh, for a number of reasons, but uh, predominantly achieving economies of scale in an extremely difficult uh, financial environment. So uh, I'll turn it over to uh, the investment bankers and Aaron as well. Well, I'll, I'll defer to Alex and Jason. It's not something I, I dive in too much. So you guys are experts. Yeah, well, well I'm, I'm happy to start. Um, you know, Mike, as you said, you know, I think consolidation activity uh, in the QCare space has been underway uh, for the last eight, nine years, um, and particularly with regard to rural and safety net hospitals and ones that are not as financially secure um, as a general matter, much less with everything that's going on with COVID right now. Um, you know, I would expect there, and you're already seeing, I think, some renewed merger activity in the space generally. Um, I think a lot of that tends to be regional combinations um, uh, that, and, you know, instead of backfilling within a given MSA um, that you're looking at sort of expanding or partnering up with somebody in an adjacent state or adjacent set of markets to give you uh, a little bit more geographic reach. Um, and, you know, I think that, uh, that if anything, COVID is, is the, certainly not inhibiting that, uh, it appears, and, and will probably facilitate that continued kind of activity. Um, uh, at the same time, you know, I do think it's going to create stresses for individual hospitals, particularly ones that aren't part uh, of a larger system. And we may see some of those um, either closed or, or kind of go through the bankruptcy process and emerge with different ownership structures. Uh, going forward. I, I think if I could weigh in one thing is that there's a huge difference between profit center, profit centers with hospitals and certain profit centers make a lot where other ones make very little. And that diversifying out by the centers via mergers is going to be very important for bulletproofing for the future. So I, I think you will see a lot of activity looking to, to sort of stabilize the baseline. I think uh, both those answers were very comprehensive. The only one thing that I would add is there's been some legislation, at least in the state of California and a few other uh, states, where there is some push to uh, you know, seek attorney general privilege or approval over specific transactions. Um, it's something that, again, we're not as attentive to. I would look to Aaron and Emily and, and um, the, the legal team here to kind of weigh in on. But it's something that we've paid attention to, been cognizant of, and I think would be much more applicable um, to what I'll call headline uh, environments like a hospital um, versus, you know, a hospice business that's, you know, regionally oriented. So that's something that we're kind of paying attention to and certainly think could abut some of the inherent demand that would exist between you know, stronger performing hospitals and more of the distressed uh, hospitals that Dr. Brandt pointed out. On behalf of Mike, I'd like to thank everyone for joining us today. Um, the panelists, you guys are all terrific, so insightful, uh, such interesting times, and uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed hearing where we're going to go in these different areas. So we hope you all found today's information useful, and we look forward to connecting with you real soon. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.